listening to Texas Slim's Vision, where we discuss food intelligence, the Texas Beef Initiative, and how to design an international lifestyle starting right here, right now. You don't want to miss this. And now, here's your host, Texas Slim. Hey guys, this is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's Vision. Today I have David Bennett and Justin Trammell. You guys have heard Justin Trammell on uh, my podcast the last two weeks. And of course, you know David as None Your Business, and he has his daily podcast. Hey, David, how are you doing today? Mm. Uh, getting getting liquored up. How are you doing? Well, it is Friday night here, so. It is. <laughs> Justin, it is. Justin, yeah. how are you doing, Brad? I saw that you had a Shiner Bach there as well, so. Yep, yeah, just relax and it's it's easy to talk about this kind of stuff and relax so yeah it, it's time to relax this week i think all of us have had a, a very busy couple of weeks a lot of things are going on these days um you know we've been trying to get this three-way podcast together all of us live in the texas panhandle we're up on the yano estacado and uh we all kind of fell together through bitcoin and through cattle and through dirt and soil and um the texas panhandle so it's really cool that we can have these conversations and uh tonight i'm excited to bring it all together uh one thing i wanted to talk about guys was i wanted to talk about the texas panhandle i wanted to talk about its history i wanted to talk about the grasslands and i wanted to talk about the soil and the biology of the soil and i want to talk later on about the texas beef initiative and uh kind of what you're doing justin and in what how you see things david as well moving forward you are on a couple podcasts that i heard that you had some interesting um thoughts on the future so uh let's talk about that uh justin let's start off with you as far as you're on the last on the last podcast you said you know cows are land tools and to be a good rancher, a regenerative rancher, you need to be a grass farmer. Let's kind of touch on that and then kind of go into the grasses. Well, really what you're talking about is using an ecosystem to produce food. And ultimately it comes down to the organisms, mainly the grasses, whenever you're talking about up here, that can capture the sunlight and actually turn that into usable sugars by other organisms. Without that critical junction, no, nothing else exists. And so you have to look, you have to frame it as an ecosystem, because if you don't, you're just looking at the cattle. And very often, it's very easy to overlook the other things that are happening in the ecosystem that can be very informative as to how you might could take better care of that ecosystem. And so that's really the difference in the mindset is being a grass farmer. You're taking care of the ecosystem and the grasses, number one. If you're just being a rancher, generally, you're just taking care of the animal as number one. So very, very big difference in the way that you look at things. And it really helps change your mindset, which then helps you kind of open up to other alternative methods like rotational grazing and, uh, you know, mob grazing and interspecies grazing and everything else that goes along with that. Right. Um, that gives a pretty good picture of everything. Um, David saying, you know, what Justin just said, it kind of, you had you know a lot of history and everything as far as why did we change doing that type of farming here in the texas panhandle and across the you know across the nation when do you see that this started changing into a way to where it's evolved into now which is a lot of you know fiat destruction and we know everything about that so 
Well, I mean, it's 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 hard to say definitively because it's like, you know, unless I get into the annals of like all the USDA, you know, communications that have come out over the last, you know, what, 12 decades, you know, or whatever. Um, it's it's hard to put a finger on it, except what if I have to put a finger on it, it's 1973 and the secretary of the Department of Agriculture, uh, Secretary Butts, when he said, you will now farm from fence row to fence row. But what he was actually saying was, you will farm commodity crops from fence row to fence row. And when that happened, uh, a lot of grazed land basically got raised uh, and, and I mean, when I mean raised, I mean raised as in like you tear down whole neighborhoods of houses. And that's what we did with with grasslands. We did a lot of that with grasslands because subsidies came in. Farmers were going to get paid whether that crop got sold at whatever price. It did not matter for the farmers because they were going to get a subsidy. And of course, I mean, of course, they're going to take that. It, it's not like. It's not like the, that I'm like bagging on the farmers. It's hard enough to be a farmer into, you know, in today's age, it was hard to be a farmer in the seventies. It was hard to be a farmer in the sixties. I'm not bagging on them. Of course they're going to take this, but when they took that, a lot of grazed land got hammered and turned under and turned into commodity crops. And the minute that we started doing all that, um, we started losing carbon out of the soil. And the reason that that happened is that at the time, we don't have to do this as much now. We have different technologies that can be applied, but it still, it still is a little difficult for some people to wrap their mind around something called a, you know, a seed drill where, where you don't have to plow the land. And I, had, I was on a podcast the other day when somebody asked me, well, how the hell would you plant crops if you don't till the land? And it immediately dawned on me that we've been kind of programmed to think that the only way that you can get a seed in the ground is to tear the ground up. And that's, that's not, not, not it. But be that as it may, what happens when you turn over soil is that you expose the carbon that's in the ground to oxygen, you might as well light a match to a piece of paper because that's exactly what happens. The carbon that's in the soil is in a state that is not exactly stable. It's stable as long as you've got ground cover, but the minute you expose it to oxygen, it tears up, turns into carbon dioxide and just goes away. And with that goes away, your link to all fertility that the plants would be able to get a hold of. And there's a bridge there. That carbon in the soil does a lot of bridging. And we can get into that later. I won't get into it now, but right. essentially I'm just going to say 1973. But even before that, if I had two fingers to put on it and I put one <laughs> on, on, on 1973, I'm going to put the second one on right after World War II ended. And that was with, that was the introduction of the war machine having to convert its, 
its revenue model from selling to, you know, the United States government and the War Department and all that. They had to sell they had to sell their bombs somewhere else. And ammonium, you know, ammonia based fertilizer is one step away from high explosive. Let's let's be honest. It did not take them that much to go, you know, shit, if we just if we just do this in the Haber-Bosch process, we're going to end up with, you know, a whole bunch of ammonium nitrate and we can just sell that to farmers and we'll just, we'll just go out there and market it so that they just dump pounds and pounds and pounds of this crap on their acreage. And, and they'll see the boost that it gives to their production and it does. But what they did not tell them is at the same time, it started killing the critters in the soil that is part that's one side of the river that that carbon bridges to the plants. And that's that I'll just, I'll just stop it there. Okay. And I'm going to come back to that because I want to, I want to see you, cause you, you did do two pretty important dates that, uh, that we'll come back to. And, um, you know, Justin's he's, he's nodding his head right now. So, um, Justin, what are your thoughts on what David just said? Well, an, an interesting kind of anecdote with that, with World War II. So my great-grandfather that farmed up in northwestern uh, Missouri, he started using spray-on chemicals after World War II because they came door-to-door and marketed those things to these farmers as things that would just make their production amazing. And lo and behold, of course, he was in an open-cab tractor. He ended up with lung cancer, and he died shortly before I was born. And he never smoked a day in his life. Right. So that's like I said, that doesn't really mean anything per se, but that (laughs) touches personally on my family because that, you know, he never did anything that would have given him that. So it's a very interesting, not only did it affect the soil, it definitely affected all the farmers that were Mm -hmm. using those items for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And so we're going to get to that. Let's layer this out. We're going to be smart about this conversation. I want to get back because everything that I've done, you know, from the harvest company, my thing, I was sitting in a little bunk one night and I said, what am I going to, how, how am I going to get to the bottom of what I'm trying to get to? I'm going to look at the source of the seed. So let's start with the seed, then we'll go to the soil, then we're going to go to the grass, and then we're going to go to the chemical and everything that's layered on top of top of that grass or that crop. Let's say that because grass doesn't need any chemicals. So um, so let's start with the source of the seed. You know, what they have done throughout time, you know, especially during my life, but really, really they kicked it into high gear in the 90s and they tested it was genetically modifying organisms of seeds. So they started changing the seed. Once they start changing the seed, then you're, you're, you're eliminating the true source of that seed and it's a deception. It is something that is, is false. It's not true anymore. So my thing is that anything that has been altered in that seed is going to be a deception from here on out because those seeds actually have to have chemicals for them to grow anymore. So, all right, I, I just put it into the, to the seed. Now let's go to the, David, you're, you're definitely, uh, we'll go back to you as far as being a soil expert. And you kind of talked about it a little bit before, before we started up. So let's talk about those little critters in the soil. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, uh, let me just caveat this. That's a really sure. long story. 
And I think that, and I know this I think, is challenging. <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, and I think that this is this kind of conversation is worthy of revisiting again and again, and again on We're going further podcasts, sure. because yeah. if I just start, uh, if I just unload everything that, that I've been reading for the last 12 years, then it's mm-hmm. not going to be very interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to say that when people think of soil, there it depends on the kind of person that you're talking to. What is soil? Well, some people think it's just dirt. People like me think of soil as something that's completely different than just dirt. There are other people that have no idea what the hell soil means. So l- let me kind of like break this down. We'll start with sand. Let's just... Like you got a pile of play sand, not dirt, not soil, but an intrinsic, it's an intrinsic part of what soil will finally become. You need the silicates in there, right? And that's what play sand is, right? Then you have minerals like calcium, um, oh God, limestone, like uh, there's all manner of stuff that also build into that it like add to that silicate place. And at that point, what you've got is what's called mineral soils. That's dirt. It's not soil, right? The soil that I talk about comes when you add two other things on top of mineral soils, life and, um, what is, oh, a carbon. And, the the carbon is definitely going to come from the life in the soil, but I tend to think of it as two kind of separate things. Once you have once you have silicates and mineral minerals to get mineral soil, and then you add life and carbon, now you've got actual soil. Gotcha. Well, not quite. Not quite. You got to put roots into those soils. The root drives the evolution of that soil. I can have life in there. I can have biology. I can have fungus. You can have all that stuff in the soil and it'll be okay, but the life is actually going to end up dying. You can have all the carbon you want. You have all the minerals you want, but without photosynthates, that life is going to come to an end. It will starve to death. That's what happens. It's like I'm alive, but if I don't get fed, I have three weeks before I die. Three weeks, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, what is it? Like three weeks without food, three days without water, three minutes without air. Either one of those and you're post-toasted, right? Right. So it's it's the plant roots that are in the soil that continue to drive the life that's in that soil. And as that life that's in the soil is being driven by the roots, the roots are being driven by the life in the soil. It's a cycle. They, they feed upon one another and they do that quite literally, right? Because when I say photosynthate, that is a product of photosynthesis of a plant. And generally speaking, what we're talking about is what's called root exudates. So from the roots, of healthy plants that are photosynthesizing at even if they're not peak capacity, but let's just say we got plants that are photosynthesizing at peak capacity. 
anywhere between, and I've heard, I've read numbers anywhere between 20% all the way to 70% of the sum total of products, in this case, sugar that's produced from photosynthesis is not actually held in the plant, but sweated out or exuded through the roots. Those roots by that exudate of all those different kinds of sugars attract to it all manner of life. And that life that actually sits around those roots feeding on that sugar, don't do it for free. They have a job and their job is producing different things that they can't use, but that the plant can. So as the plant feeds them sugar, these critters feed the plant back minerals that are in a form that a plant can use because in a mineral soil, even if you've got roots in there and no life, the plant actually can't get the calcium. It's not in a form that the plant can actually use. The carbon is the bridge between the life that's in the soil and the plant. That carbon is in the form of sugar because sugar, if you actually look at the if you look at the compound of sugar, whether it's dextrose, mannose, lactose, sucrose, fructose, it doesn't matter. It's a carbon backbone. That It's a carbon skeleton. And it holds the energy of the sun. And that magic molecule, no matter what form it takes, is, is the currency that the plant uses to pay for goods and services by the life in the soil. It's 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 a marketplace and it's going on every centimeter, every square, actually every cubic centimeter underneath our foot for about anywhere between a whole one foot down to two foot down. And in some cases, I've seen root structures that are 12 foot deep in grasses. And so there you go. It's a marketplace and it's happening all around us. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good description to start off with. That gives a lot of people kind of an understanding of, you know, it's not dirt. It's not, you know, what, what do you classify soil as? Cause that's very important. And uh, it's good to be able to break it down like that to where people can understand that, Oh, this is a work in progress at all times. And, you know, it, it is a marketplace, like you say uh, on that, Justin, being uh, a cattle rancher, a grass fed farmer, uh, an animal producer that uses natural grasslands, how you were shaking your head a lot, you know, with what David said, what kind of feedback do you have from your perspective of what you do in your life? And um, how do you approach what David said? Well, I mean, he really explained it quite well. And I'm glad that he's so eloquent in the way that he explains it, because (laughs) I, I, I understand all that, but I'm not sure I could have communicated it quite like that. So, but no, that's, that's, I mean, you hit it right on because that's exactly what's going on. And so whenever you start removing those plants, or even like if you take it, for example, whenever you plow, one of the best quotes I've ever heard about plowing is that takes, it's, it's you plowing an area is just like every single natural disaster hitting a city at once. It's like a city gets hit by a tornado, a hurricane, a windstorm, lightning storm, snowstorm, and wipes it. Just think what a city would look like if that actually happened. And then that's that's exactly what those microbes and all that underground ecology is going through whenever you plow. 
So if you can get away from that, that's even better. And then once you get those plants going, then whenever you have your animals that come in and graze, they affect what plants can grow there because they keep the different ecosystems and the different stages of succession. Generally, grasslands are more of an early succession type ecosystem. And so both with their grazing and their uh, hoof action and just how they act on top of the soil that affects everything else because it affects that plant that has those roots that then affect all your microbes and so also along with that too you want ecosystems that have varied plants you don't want an ecosystem that only has a monocrop of whatever even if that's a native grass you don't want a monocrop because then you only have one root system that only needs specific things from those things. And so then you, you make an ecosystem that only has very specific microbes and fungi and that kind of thing. You want a very diverse uh, ecosystem that allows for all those different kinds of basically trade. And like you, like you said. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, that's fascinating to me. I, I actually love that, you know, just the variety and everything, the amount that you need to have to have that good ecosystem. Okay, let's go back to you, David. Um, so whenever we basically, let's get into this fertilizer because that's what we're about to, we're just going to go into the fertilizer right now because you brought up, you know, after World War II, I don't think a lot of people understand this, that that type of ammunition type development and everything just strictly went into our food supply basically is what it did it, yeah it it engineered and so if it started let's say it started in 40s you know late 40s whatever okay we went many years of of experimenting and as we experimented we had success so whenever a chemical company basically has success it says we need to do another chemical to have this type of success that's how i see it how did you see it after world war ii well yeah okay so here here we go here we, we get into the we're going to get onto the treadmill of chemical usage and this is the way that this is the way that i see it and you know justin is going to be the the pro here he's going to know more about this than i do so i'm going to throw out what i think i know uh-huh. and if if uh, i screw this up justin please absolutely <laughs> jump in and correct me but we started after world war ii with Ammonium, ammonium fertilizers that is produced by what's called the Haber-Bosch chemical reaction. That was actually way before we're like, I think that was in the mid thirties when they came up with this. And what it did is it made high explosives out of, well, sucking the nitrogen out of the, out of the atmosphere and doing chemical reactions on it and turned it into high explosives. Well, those explosives started being used in the war, right? And like bombs. We're not talking about gunpowder here. The the you know what you were shooting out of your, you know, out of your M1 Garand was just black powder, you know. Right. But the bombs that were being dropped, that's where the Haber Bosch uh, Haber Bosch reaction was was of most use. So after World War II ended. You got all these companies that that are have this what this one process, the Haber Bosch process, as their main monetary model, 
and they don't know what to do with it. They're like, well, the war is over. We can't, we're not dropping bombs on anybody anymore. What the hell do we do with this? It doesn't take a chemical engineer very long to figure out that you can just turn this into, at the time, they were just looking at it and going, well, we know plants at that point, they knew plants needed nitrogen. And they're like, what if we just dump it on the dump it on the plants? We'll just take it to the farmers and we'll see if we can sell it to them. And they marketed it to them and it worked because when you high dose corn, wheat, whatever, with this stuff, you're going to get an instant reaction that season. Not four seasons down the line. No, that season. It is instant gratification. It is a high time preference. And what they showed the farmers was that every single time that you dump this shit on your field, you're going to make more money because you're going to rake in more bushels per acre. And it worked. Except what was going on in the soil at the time was unseen. You, the, the, here's the thing. Marketing works really well with what you can see. It sucks with what you can't see. And what they did not see was the disassociate, the dissociation of many soil critters dissociating from plant roots. Why? One is, okay. One of the critters involved is mycorrhizal fungi. That's one of the, that's a, Keystone species, when we're talking about the importance, keystone basically means without it, everything else starts to degrade. So in my opinion, mycorrhizal fungi is a keystone species in the soil, and it will not associate with plants. Actually, it's not that it won't associate with plants in the presence of uh, chemical fertilizers. The plant won't associate with the mycorrhizal fungi. Because it's a two-way street. It's not like the mycorrhizal fungi is calling all the shots. The plant gets to call the shots too. And it has to be accepting of that fungi. And that fungi does a lot of stuff. And again, that's a another bag. Trust me when I say the mycorrhizal fungi does a lot of stuff for the plant. But in the presence of this chemical fertilizer, it doesn't make those associations. Without those associations, the plant or the mycorrhizal fungi is not going to be in a position to get as much of the carbon exudates from the plant, and it just slowly recedes and over time goes away. So now you're completely dependent upon chemical fertilizers. Well, one of the things that mycorrhizal fungi do is help the plant be robust in the presence of pests. So now we got a pest problem. Oh my God. It was like, holy shit, my, my bushels per acre are going down. I thought you said that if I put this stuff on my land, I was always going to have this, this bushel production. Oh, well, sir, you've got, you've got pests. Well, I got a thing for that. We call it pesticide. Let's put this shit on there. So now the farmer's got two inputs. Before this, there was zero inputs. Now mm-hmm. we've got fertilizer. Now we got pesticide because we got sick plants. Why do we have sick plants? Not making the associations with the critters in the soil that allow for the f- true functioning of a plant to be a plant. After that, 
because the pesticides does all kinds of neat stuff to soil critters. Namely, it kills them. But it also has this bad habit of chelating micronutrients and taking them in a, even further away from the ability for a plant to use. Well, now we've got some serious soil problems going on. And guess what God really wants to do to soil that's sick? It sends in the weeds. Because weeds fix stuff. It's like God's hammer. If you want to fix a whole bunch of land real quick, send in the amaranth. Send in the pigweed. Send in what? What else, what's my favorite? Lamb's quarters. Bind, bindweed. Bind, yeah, bindweed. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of bindweed in my yard right, neat, right now. But that fixes soil. Unless, unless your guy from, you know, the co-op comes down and says, I got this shit called herbicide and it'll take care of your weed problem. And herbicide has this really funny thing of not only killing weeds, but killing yet more and different critters in the soil and chelating yet other types of ions and minerals that your plant would like to be able to use, but now can't because it's an chelated format that the plant can't actually access. So now we have three inputs and it just gets worse and worse. Now we've got a, now we've got bad fungus. We've got, Oh, what's the name of that fungus that oh, it's, it's just, it was on the tip of my tongue. I can't fusaria, something like that. It there, there's good funguses. There are also bad funguses. Now I got, fungicide i got a fourth input and then i got nematicides to kill all the nematodes because it just goes on and on and on and it all started when somebody figured out that they weren't going to be able to make any money dropping a bomb on somebody so they dropped a bomb on the farmers and it has started it has started a, a chain reaction that the farmers don't understand I can barely understand it, and I can only understand what I do understand because I've read so many freaking books on the matter that it's just it's just it's all I think about anymore. I'm not right. a farmer, I'm not a rancher, right. but I can read and I can look at data, and I'm like the shit that I'm looking at is terrifying. Well, it's fascinating because we can find out the information that the farmers never had access to for one now. I mean, we know how to be, you know, all of us are, you know, that are in the know a little bit are research analysts. That's what we do, uh, especially, you know, with each of our studies or each of our skill sets. It's not that hard to find. But for the farmer after the World War II and the 50s and the 60s, they didn't know anything. They didn't understand it. They were just doing, you know, those industries were coming out there and they were a marketing plan, you know, and they were new industries mm -hmm. that were created. And, you know, when you look at the times, let's look at the 50s, you know, it was it, America was fun then. You know, there was a lot of things that were happening. There's innovation coming, you know, two car, you know, two, par two parents, two kids, white picket fence, all this stuff was happening. And, you know, you look at farmers, they're like, wow, we are in the best times ever. Look at our crops. Look at our yields. Look at everything. And, you know, it's mm -hmm. cheaper. We don't have to have we don't have to work as hard as we used to. This is we do deserve a break. You know, it, it just became somewhat of a, a, a change, a paradigm shift and everything. And 
saying that, Justin, you, you come from it. Your whole family comes from farming all the way from across the pond. And you can reflect on all this, you know, with knowing your family history for one and just your level of expertise as being a farmer and rancher. Yeah, and you can even see this even if you just do a little garden yourself. Uh, I do a little bit of vegetable production, not a lot. Right. But even with what I do, I've migrated to a system completely where I don't have fertilizer inputs. The fertilizer inputs I have are from my animals that I run over the top of the area before I go in and plant something. And I always make sure that there's stuff growing all the time. And anytime that you come out during the actual growing season, to anybody that's used to industrial agriculture, my personal garden looks like a nightmare to them because there's all sorts of other plants. One of my favorite plants actually that I've encountered recently is uh, common mallow. And it's an amazing plant that grows along the ground and it's one of the most hated ones because it's got a massive taproot and it's almost impossible to kill. But whenever you use it correctly, I actually used it as ground cover. I left it. I cut off what was going to threaten the plant right beside it, let the plant get big enough, and then that ground cover came back through. And I, I had amazing success with that. So there's all sorts of very interesting things that you can see if you're really looking for them. It's, it's not stuff that's easy to see if you're not looking. You have to be very aware and you have to, look, to really think outside the box. Um, on top of that, if you're talking about grazing situations as well, lots of these um, systems, whenever you take out a grazing animal, you, you start having those same issues as well because those grazing animals do leave the manure and the urine which also encourages those soil microbes, which then again, just kind of snowballs into your healthy ecosystems. And so those chemicals allow for, you know, you to strip out any animal interaction period, not to mention, you're not even talking about the other larger animals in the ecosystem, insects, mice, you know, everything from there up. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's really easy to see and, then if you start throwing in irrigation on top of that, I know actually our farmer next door, they've had to change what crops they can even grow because they've irrigated so much and used so much of that kind of stuff that their soils are now too saline to grow most oh, commodity crops. Really? But they still put everything on there. They still irrigate. They still. And so it's just a it's a system of diminishing returns, really. But it's it, well, and unfortunately, they're kind of trapped. Well, I, I think I saw a little bit of that this summer. And you say he's having to grow different crops. Let's let's walk through maybe the evolution of what they would plant in the past and what they're going to be planting in the future. Because well, they they originally just planted corn. Right. And and generally corn is not very tolerant of, of salt in your soil. And so now they've had to migrate to more like Milo or sorghum and uh, winter wheat. They can't do corn anymore. And now even in some of the other places, now they're having to move to cotton during the summer because cotton can handle much higher levels of saline. And so they just keep having to shift. Oh. And, you know, it's just and it's not even a conversation you can even start to have with them. 
they'll tell you, they'll talk to you about, oh, you know, I, this is happening and we've had to drill more wells and, you know, it's just a shame. And you go, yeah, but if you even start into a conversation about soil microbes or anything else, because any, any of these farmers that have gone to any of these agricultural schools that, you know, they preach the, all those inputs that those are necessary and, and those are absolute, getting past that is extremely hard. Not to mention, it's also a tradition thing at this point now. And so having a conversation with a producer, not only are you trying to fight the education they had, mm-hmm. you're also having to fight the tradition because they've been doing it like that since the 40s. Right. Yeah, that's how granddaddy did it. That's how my daddy did it. I, I mean, that's going to be a thing. Well, I think it's one of the hardest things and it, because we, we get into this and all of us, all three of us, I, I have to watch it every day. We have to tiptoe through this in ways that I don't want to, but we have to. We have to be tactful about this. We have to be respectful. We have to, you know, everything. And because if we start, you know, if we go after the bad guys, you know, they don't like that. So, you know, there are bad actors in this. There's there is deception in this. And, you know, it is it's a tough it's a tough uh, communication structure that you have to move forward with. You're right, Justin. And so by knowing all these truths and really, really is going to be the only thing that saves our agriculture is getting back to um back to the source of the seed and back to the soil. And so by me saying that, you know, I'm not a professional farmer or a rancher, but I can play one. <laughs> no, I've done a little bit of both, but let's, let's go back to, you know, I heard you talk about it on a podcast, David saying, okay, what happens whenever they finally realize that the soil is crushed and these guys that are farming their land or they're leasing the land, what do you really see that is an option that we can look forward to and just paint a picture of the future down the road, the next decade. And, you know, just whatever you think, what would you like to see? Knowing what you know, knowing uh, how you see the financial world, how we see farming and ranching as it is right now. What I'd like to see does not fit with what I'm about to say, because I don't want to see the following, but here's what I think is going to happen. Okay. You're going to be able to pick up up whatever. You're going to be able to pick up acres for buck fifty, two dollars, and the reason is because nobody's going to want it because it's un, it's unfarmable. It's completely it's shot its wad, dude. It's it's completely it's crushed beyond all comprehension of the word. You got you'll have massive soil compaction. You will have almost you'll almost be back down to mineral soils, and you will have a chemical catastrophe. To the point that one day a farmer is going to go out there to that same field that has been producing X, Y, and Z commodities for the last 75 years, and they're going to drill seed into it, and they're going to put all the stuff on it that they always put on, and they are going to end up without a crop. It's just, it's it's going to happen. And if that when that happens four times in a row, and it will happen, maybe may, may take five or six, it depends on if crop insurance is going to be there for them or not. But at one point or another, that, that land is going to be unfarmable. It's going to go back to a bank. That bank is going to auction it. 
and people are going to be able to pick up sections of land for what they never thought possible. Now, when they get that section of land, it's and, and, and we will, if I'm still alive, when this shit happens, I will be one of them, but I will be looking at a section of land that I will have to work for a minimum of three to five years with heavy livestock usage, like leader follower systems. And by leader follower, I mean cows, followed by, by maybe a smaller ruminant, followed by chickens and then followed by turkeys and then get down to quail. I, I, I'd have to know all of those animal, all of that animal husbandry. So that's not exactly a small feat by any stretch and getting them on the, getting the animals and getting them on the land and doing the rotational grazing, trying to figure out a way to get the, get the life kick started back up in the soil so that I've got a photosynthesis cycle and I've got a water cycle. If I can get those two things to kickstart, well, I got myself something that I can look forward to farming in a different way, but it would still be another five, seven years. I may not have that. I may not have that long. That paints a pretty damn grim picture of what's going on, but I can't see any way out of this because it gets worse. You were talking about GMO. What, the companies are building into the GMOs. Let's say that they are not at all evil. And I don't believe that for a second. I, I don't. But let's say for just the, just, just the sake of argument that they're, they're really good hearted. They're just, their science is just horribly misplaced. What are they looking at? Well, like Justin, you were saying that your neighbors have a salinity problem. Well, gee, I'll bet we could GMO a crop that that can handle salinity. You can do that. It's possible. You, you, You throw in like some, you know, extra genes for some sodium pumps to kick it back out. You know, I've, I've seen that sodium pump being cellular sodium pumps. We won't get into it, but cells regulate themselves uh, with many different types, types of ions. And they do that through the method of pumps. But now let's say, well, you know, God, David, you got a whole bunch of pesticides on your land. Uh, you know, we got a GMO for that. We got a GMO for all the nematicides and the neonicotinides and and all the herbicides that we, we've got. We've got a GMO corn that you can plant on this crap soil that will work. And again, not for very much longer. But what I'm getting at is that you're actually designing a seed set, a genetic set for something that is completely unnatural. So when those soils do come back to life, those seeds won't work. Those seeds will be for shit in that soil because that soil, when you bring it back to life, is is, what they're building into the seeds right now is they're building in catastrophe. They're Mm -hmm. building in, this is apocalyptic seed that we're making and it will not take long to bring these soils back from from the brink of apocalypse. It may not be within my lifetime, but it will happen. And it will happen within my children's lifetime, at least, is if somebody is actually working that soil. But what seeds will we have? We will have seeds that are not designed for 
healthy, vibrant soil. We will have seeds that are designed for apocalyptic, catastrophic, dystopian hellscape farms. Right. You better start saving seeds that are non-GMO now. I don't know exactly how to go about that, but if we don't have that genetic stock that can live in this in in functional soils, right? The seeds we're going to have ten years from now are going to be completely designed for apocalyptic hellscapes. Well, and I, I think that's in the Bitcoin community. I know there's a lot of interest there, and it's starting to network out. The signal's starting to grow, so I think we're going to have some good stuff. I'm going to use the Texas Beef Initiative to to kind of bring that information in as well for people wanting to source or, or supply or educate on the on the seeds that you talk about. Um, before we go to you, Justin, I want to I wanted to bring up something they've been doing for a while now, and it's called the Doomsday Vault. And it's in um, it, what they've done. It's in Iceland. It's called the Svalberg, I believe. Let me let me look it up here real quick. It Maybe is, Greenland. I think it is. In, you know what? It's in Norway, actually. Norway. And, okay. Yeah, it's in Norway, and it's called the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. And what they've got millions and millions of seed varieties. In, of our food crops that used to be, that were what we used to use, that the farmers used. And now they've got it under lock and key in a multi-hundred million dollar vault to where we can't have access to it anymore. That tells you something, that the seed companies do have our seeds and they are under lock and key. And now they're genetically modifying new seeds. So. To your point, David, thank you. Justin, what do you think? <laughs> well, just feet jumping right off that, there's actually quite a few organizations that I, I've worked with and, and do work with that keep native, uh, I'll call them native seeds because that's basically what they are. They're generally right. endemic to an area and it's the food plants that a people of an area would use. And so like Rocky Mountain Seed uh, Alliance is a really good one. And there's a, uh, quite a few others, quite a few uh, indigenous groups that do that. And so it's definitely worth doing because you would be amazed at what some of those seed stocks can do whenever you just put them in a, a piece of ground that you don't add any kind of thing to. Not to mention, it's not hard to save your own seed. And mm -hmm. I do that quite a bit. I've got a ton of okra seed that I'm, I actually need to pull that'll be for next year. But right. so it's a, it's definitely a good thing. So do you want me to jump off the same thing that he answered or? Yeah, just what your thoughts are. I mean, I think what we're going to, cause this is going so well, what we'll do is we'll definitely make this a part of a part three part series at least, because we're really framing a good, you know, understanding and, you know, we could go off in four different directions, but you just kind of feed off of what David said or whatever you want to bring into it, Justin, okay. that's fine. Well, I'll kind of answer the same uh, question, question that you asked him. And so I do agree with what he's saying. And I think especially when we add an irrigation on top of that, it compounds the issue even more because then you're talking about abuses that are happening because they're able to circumvent the water cycle on top of everything else that they're circumventing. And then suddenly whenever it's not there, then it just it all falls apart. 
And so I completely agree. And you can actually already see it happening in places like Muleshoe and Silverton and some of these other small farming communities where they can't irrigate anymore. And they've pushed the land to basically the brink. And now you're looking at not quite as inexpensive as what you're talking about, but you're still looking at $150 to $300 an acre land. And so, I mean, it's, there's, it's a really bad thing, but there's also a lot of potential there because if you do have producers who want to come in and use the animals and use things like no-till, where you have a drill and actually I even have a drill that I would argue is pretty much no-till and it's a drill from like the 30s or 40s mm-hmm. and it doesn't put the seed very deep at all. But if you have most of your most of your food crop or even like sorghum or millet or something that an animal is going to be grazing on, it doesn't need to be very deep. And so you can put it in there and then even better than that, there's things like uh, pasture cropping where instead of going in and plowing up an entire field of grassland, you go in with a drill like that and all it's taken out is a little strip where it puts the seed. And then that plant grows. There's so there's two people that come to mind that do that exceptionally well. Gabe Brown in North or South Dakota. South and then Dakota. there's actually South Dakota. Yeah. And, and then uh, there's actually a guy here in Hereford that is starting to do that. And he's had exceptional successes. And, and, but he does, he doesn't, he's not just a tractor farmer. He has livestock. He's focused on the playas, which are a very unique thing here. And they do contribute to all of what we're talking about here. He is focused on the soil health and, and he's, he does an extremely good job of it. And he's very profitable. So it's not like we're talking about going back to the old style, you know, I think uh, old Western movie, you know, where you see the dusty homestead and, you know, they're they're only eating beans because that's all they can afford. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. So there's it's definitely grim, but there's definitely some rays of light. But you have to know where and how to look for them. Right. Go ahead, David. Yeah, Justin, I want to address that that those scenes of that you were talking about, like eating beans and it's just dirt everywhere. And I I I actually have it. I actually have a tinfoil hat <laughs> that my wife bought me, and I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go there right now. I I can't help but wonder if those scenes, because I I I there's like three particular movies about the Dust Bowl that were really famous and you know obviously one was um oh god was it um i can't remember the name of it right now really uh really really famous but in in either event i can't help but wonder if those scenes were to scare uh people out of farming and because these were these movies were produced in the late 40s and i there's just something about these scenes where it's like there's not a tree in sight. There's not a blade of green grass. Everything's brown. Everything's dismal. Everybody's dirty. And this was the for a decade and a half. These movies were making the rounds. <laughs> let me see. And let at, me see if I get it right, David. Uh, Grapes of Wrath and Last Picture yep, Show. Uh, maybe well, those, no, are, those gra- are two that I remember. Grapes of, well, Grapes of Wrath, definitely. Uh, Last Picture Show 
was more about oil, but it was in West Texas, was, and you did yeah, get the, it was West the Texas, dirt. and it was dirt, and it was black and white, and it yeah. was tumbleweeds. That's what I remember. Although, it was like, if if for anybody that's listening, if you have not seen the Last Picture Show, go watch it. One of the best movies ever made, and then go watch the sequel. The sequel is freaking hilarious. It's it's well done. Any in either event, it 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 you know these scenes that we keep seeing about farming is always the same. And it wasn't until I ran into guys like Gabe Brown, Joel Salatin, all these folks. And I'm looking at their farms going, wait a minute, I want to get married in that field. That is pastoral AF. It's it's gorgeous. This is where I would like, I want to hang out there for the rest of my life. And the movies that were being passed around for 20 years, you didn't want to be there. You didn't want to be anywhere close to it. You didn't want to be a farmer. And I, you know, whether they meant to do it or not, I think those films did a, a massive amount of damage. Not to say that it would have saved us from being where we are today. We'd still be here. We just have less farmers. <laughs> you yeah. see, the average age of a farmer right now is 62 years old. And I think I'm being conservative on that number. And that's in the United States, at least. I'm not sure about the rest of the world. But what's great is that, you know, Justin, you were talking about the rays of sunshine. Some of the rays, most of the rays of sunshine I'm seeing are actually coming out of the Bitcoin world. I've seen more people that got into Bitcoin and now find themselves absolutely fascinated with being on land caring for land. They don't even know why. They, they, there are many people that I've talked to, they're like going, I can't explain it to you. I have to be out there. Something's happening and I think it's really, really good. But it's one of those things where I feel the need to, you know, to nurture that, which means we, I, this is why I like doing, you know, this with, you know, Slim and, and being able to talk to you because it's like, if we can get more of the people that are really interested in Bitcoin that are interested in this too, to start engaging and interfacing with it. I don't know, man. I, I, I think it'll turn around. I, I really do. I think those will be the, the people that buy stuff in, you know, mule shoe for, for 250 bucks an acre and say, you know what, it may take me 30 years, but I'm going to turn this into, you know, like me, I, I want to do alley cropping on, um, uh, black walnut and have black strips of black walnut that are, I don't know, at, at least 200 to 250 feet away from each other so that there's these huge alleys going down that I can start saying, you know, this year I'm going to graze that entire mile of alley and the alley that's next to it going to do like, oh, uh, not, not marijuana, uh, the fiber part. Yeah. The hemp. Hemp. Yeah. And then and then ro- like rotate those like I'm rotating the grazing animals going through and using the animals to, act, you know, plant cover crops, like throw cover seed right before I put a crew of animals on top of it. So they pound it in the soil and then take them off. And that's planted. I didn't have to drill anything in these kinds of these kinds of things where you're like, how can I use the animal to this best benefit? What do they actually do and how can I maximize 
what it is that they do for my benefit as well as the animals benefit themselves. And you're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, you are. And, you know, you know, I'm, I came in the Bitcoin space late. I've always told everybody that, but you're right. Reason, I don't know. We, we look at everything. We look at the truth in, in money, you know, the deception of money as we know it, uh, the whole financial world. We look at, you know, we look at food. I mean, that's why I'm, I, embarked on my journey here yeah. my mission to bring out the the truth and to get where you know is you know dear to me here at home is you know it was cattle and agriculture and you know and that's kind of brought me to meeting both of you guys and you know i walked up to justin you know at the farmer's market and said i want to talk to you and you know and it was because of bitcoin and it, you know and justin's not there yet we haven't talked about bitcoin we've been talking about you know farming we're talking about beef and everything and uh you know justin's got a little curiosity he'll you know he'll figure it out and one thing about it is there are a lot of people coming this direction. There are lots of rays of light yeah. that are coming and they're very passionate about it. And they, they're, they're, they want to establish legacies. They're not doing this high time preference type of living anymore. We're sick of it. We want low time preference, high value lives that create legacies for our children. That is what, we're bringing to the table and it doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't matter who you are. This is how it's going to be. And this is how it's going to work out. And I, I really believe that. And that's why we're here right now on a Friday night talking about this. And so let's, let's, you know, let's talk about the Yano Estacado. Let's talk about the Caprock. Let's talk about the Texas Panhandle. It's very rugged. It is, you know, sometimes, you know, the last picture we'll show was filmed here. <laughs> you know, it was a form of, you know, it was a depressed looking movie. It was black and white and they had tumbleweeds. But one thing about it up here is that we have some amazing grasslands. We have some amazing water sources. We have so many things that, you know, I don't think a lot of uh, we a lot of us get credit for up here in the Texas Panhandle. And you're basically living it, Justin, because, um, you know, you, you've you been doing this your whole life. You came from it. You know, the grasslands, you know, the crops that are around here. What do you see as far as your dream, as far as moving forward with your cattle and your, you know, your beef? production your beef uh, processing and your beef supplying and how are you going to use this land in the texas panhandle well really i mean short grass prairies are unique because they're very well adapted to drought and they're very well adapted to work with those microbes that we've already talked about to pull out all sorts of things from the soil that's underneath them because generally you're talking about heavy clay soils that can be pretty hard on some crops. And so not only that, but because we don't get a lot of rainfall, it's it's kind of a mixed blessing. Uh, there's something that can happen whenever you get lots of rain call, rainfall called bleaching, where it the rain actually pulls a lot of those minerals too deep for those grasses to get a hold of. So in some places where you get tons and tons of rainfall, you can have grass that's four foot tall and not hardly worth anything nutritionally. Whereas here, we can have grass that's two inches tall and will sustain all sorts of animals because it's got just as much kick in that little two to four inch sprig as some of those tall grass do tall grasses do that have a 
you know, two to three or four foot tall grass. And it's very easy to overlook that because if you look at at short grass prairie, you think, man, there's not hardly anything to, for an herbivore to eat out there. What what are you talking about? And so we're we're really in a very unique place that if you set your systems up to take advantage of that, you can see really, really good benefits. You get exceptionally healthy animals from those little grasses. And not to mention, whenever I, I, I'm talking about the grasses, you also have to include the forbs that are in there. All these different forbs that are around, which includes things like the occasional mesquite, the occasional yucca, includes things like silver silverleaf nightshade and all these other plants that are not something a traditional rancher would look at because a traditional rancher looks at a grassland and goes, okay, I need as much grass as possible to feed as many animals. But again, that's going back to that kind of monoculture where you start getting into some of the negatives with the culture that you have under the ground. So we're really in a very unique spot if you know how to take advantage of it and if you set your system up to take advantage of it. And so you have to be very intentional and we've we've talked lots about that. You have to be very intentional with how you set things up and why you set things up. And you have to be willing to modify those with the rains that we get. Because that's another thing that you have to take into account here is there's years that we get hardly any rain. Some years, there's been years out here we get less than three inches of rain for the entire year. And then there's years that we get over 30 inches. But there's also years that we get all our rainfall in two months out of the year. And again, that that may sound like, oh, that should be fine. But whenever you get into a summer where you just got all the rainfall, you're going to get period. And then you get into a situation where you've got 60 days of 100 degree temperatures. That's gone. And so you have to be able to adapt. If you're not going to adapt, it is not going to work out here. That's just that it's just not. So if you have somebody that's willing to do those things, you really have a gold mine as far as being able to produce food. And that even includes food crops if you're willing to do the no-till and the pasture cropping and that kind of setup. But again, that goes back to being intentional and and thinking outside the box. None of this is for the faint of heart. <laughs> no. None, period. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's going to be years that you just have to accept, all right, this year is not going to be nearly as productive because of things you can't control. But the more, the better that you get a system set up, the better you can do that. And the better that your, your soil microbiology functions, the more water retention you're gonna have. One of our biggest issues around here is we have that clay soil. About max, your, your rainfall infiltration, so infiltration is the amount of water that actually soaks into your soil. You're looking at somewhere around 0.2 inches per hour is how much water that soil can observe, observe, absorb, goodness. Um, if you look at somebody like Gabe Brown, he has very similar soil to what we have. And he has some of those pastures that can take six and eight inches of rain in an hour. Uh-huh. So he can have a massive rainfall because that's also... A lot of times that's how we get our rainfall. We don't get these little 
rain showers. Sometimes we do, but a lot of times our rain showers, they're dumping three, four, eight inches of rain at a time in 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if so you could take b- point, two, if you could take point two, then you lose 3.8 inches yep. on runoff, which is also taken. It's, it's erosive, you know, and yep. Gabe, and he's not the only guy that says it, but there's a, a thing that, that I, I always hear that those guys talk about. It's like, he gets asked a question, well, how much rain do you get? And he says, all of it. <laughs> and it's, it's hard. It's hard to fathom what the hell he means by that until you start really digging into all this and you got to dig to understand like just what soil porosity means and how to get it. And you don't get it through tilling it. You, you, you till something you're going to actually, it looks great for a couple of days. It's nice and fluffy. And then it just falls apart and people just don't, they don't, they don't see that. They don't realize that the granularity of the, of the soil is actually produced by all the critters in the soil. They're, pooping all the time and a lot of that poop has this glue like structure and it glues all these particles together and it glues them like little particles together in like little rocks that have these great big gaping spaces between them and water just falls right through it and that's where one of my favorite my favorite thing to look at in soil beyond the biology whether it's fungus or microbes or arthropods or whatever beyond looking at the roots is looking at what carbon in the soil does and the different kinds of carbon that there is and one of my favorite things in the world is i think a lot about biochar and how it can be applied and is it worth it and all like how can you make it where it's cheap and how deep does it have to be to actually be effective but one of the things that i know about straight up charcoal in soil is that for every gram of charcoal that's or carbon that is that is in the form that looks like charcoal, not sugar, but charcoal, just almost pure carbon. For every gram that's in the soil, you hold nine grams of water in an adsorption situation, not an absorption. Absorb is like a sponge. You squeeze it, all the water can come out evaporates real quick adsorption is like a chemical bond to water and that's what carbon does so the plant to get the wash strip the water off of the carbon actually has to put in metabolic energy to do it and that means that it's not evaporating out of the soil very easily and the guys that have like two percent carbon in their soil they don't get the benefits of being able to hold the water that they do capture. But the guys that have like five, Gabe's getting up to, he's almost probably damn near past seven at this point. He doesn't even worry about irrigation. He doesn't worry about drought. He doesn't worry about any of it. He doesn't care anymore because he's like, I capture all the rain that I get and all the rain that I get stays put because of carbon. And that's like sort of where I'm, that's sort of my focus but it splits off into plant roots, photosynthates, you know, critters and fungi and all that kind of stuff. But, but carbon is critical. It's a critical issue. Well, and that's, 
and we got to talk about carbon because that's the big push right now with everything in the world. And, you know, we're going to go to a carbon credit economy that people don't understand yet. It's coming no, and it's going to come hard and it's going to come fast. And it's going to be able to use you. It's going to be able to use the, the consumer, the producer in ways that you have not been captured before. And they're going to be able to say you're good. You're a good consumer. You're a good rancher. You're a bad rancher. You're a good uh, citizen. You're a bad citizen because of your carbon usage. So let's go into carbon and let's paint the picture about where they're wrong and where, where, where basically what you guys are talking about is, is the truth and in where where the lies are and why they are fabricating these lies my opinion is it's because they know they destroyed the soil and they know they did it with chemicals and they know that they're running out of time and so they're going to try to grow our food in ways that has never been accomplished before from 3d printed meat to stem cell harvesting and production in labs to Filth. false commodity uh, pea proteins and soy proteins that are, you know, horrible type of pro uh, crops and to basically creating whole new fake commodity systems for food consumption that is going to further destroy our metabolical health in our nation and basically make us even more medical bankrupt. So saying all of that, you know, that's why I'm doing the Texas Beef Initiative. So I'll let either one of you kind of jump in and let's talk about carbon. Let's, let's tell the truth here. And this is not a judgment against anybody. Once again, this is not what this is about. This is about truth and how do we get to the truth and actually be able to emulate the truth in way places or um, in situations like Gabe Brown has done. We'll just use his, him as an example and how you are living your life, Justin, as well, and how you're basically becoming an expert, David. So whoever wants to jump in, go for it. Justin, go. Well, I, I, I'll focus on the animal side of things because that's really where I'm most comfortable. Cool. But really, um, I, I would go back, and, and I think we've already talked about this a little bit, I would go back even to right after all the glaciers are treated. One of the big drivers was all of these large grazing animals. And they were the bison, they were the ground sloths, they were these big, big animals. And they were the carbon cycle within all of that. And if you don't think there was lots of carbon there, then I don't... I don't really know if you, if you don't understand matter is not created or destroyed. It changes form, but most of your elements are not just changing to different elements willy nilly. That takes a lot of energy. And so generally carbon is carbon. It can change, but generally it's, that's what it is. So these large ecosystems with these large animals that were grazing and affecting these ecosystems and keeping them in low succession. One of the things that happens with your lower succession ecosystems is they're always going to have to be intaking carbon because they have to be able to replace that carbon that is growing out of the soil and going into those animals. And so you have a good rotation of carbon whenever you're talking about that. So if you fast forward 
to more whenever humans arrived on the scene and we, you know, we started doing everything we were doing, even whenever, uh, the, the Europeans first got to North America, you know, you think of bison as only a great plains animal and the bison we know now is it was that, but there were still forced bison and they were even on the Eastern coast. And, and in those, there were much, much, much smaller populations than the, the great plains bison that you think of. But even then there were still all sorts of large grazing animals. And so whenever they come at these large grazing animals as one of the big issues with that, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're completely unfounded. And if they're talking about the fact that these animals can only cause issues and not be used to fix them, then they they don't understand anything about them. And I I really, I don't know if it's, because they don't have any experience with animals or because they choose not to understand it. But it's something that's so easy to observe and even easy to track, like I said, from these long, long time frames ago, like I said, from the glaciers and everything else, that it's just mind-blowing to me that it's even an issue. It's even being talked about. So, well, yeah, I, I think you're being uh, I think you're being kind, and uh, I'm going to allow you to be kind because it's your profession and you have peers uh, and everything. So, but yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. Uh, I mean, we we we've survived and we've thrived because of that. Exactly what you just said, and for all of a sudden it to be you know uh, the cow to be a carbon hazard or a climate hazard is just laughable. Ludicrous. As I brought up, you know, there were, they say there are 30 to 60 million head of Great Plains bison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a lot of, if, if that's really was the issue, then we would have had climate issues well before we even arrived on the scene. So, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting, and I'm going to put perspective, and then I'm going to let you kind of jump in here, David, let you loose. <laughs> but, uh, Guess what? United States doesn't have the most cattle in the world. Guess who does? India. India has the most cattle in the world. Okay. Then guess yeah. who? Uh, who is it? Uh, oh, it's Russia. Oh, guess then who? Oh, it's China. Then it's the United States. We have 93. We're number million. four? We're number four in the world. Okay. God. India is number one with 300 million <laughs> cattle. They don't eat cattle, of course. It's a, it's a religious thing for them, and much respect. But one thing you people don't understand is that India has 300 million cattle. If they are, you know, at COP26, the, the UN Climate Change Conference, everything that they've done this year, okay, they're, those cattle in India, are, they're not even going to be touched. They're not even going to be brought up in the conversation about climate change about methane about anything the only people that are going to pay the price are the western countries that basically thrive on subsidies and fake commodities and that is going to be the united states and in the united states they very you know cargill has already made a mask for a cow to wear to battle uh, methane. do you think they're going to put the mask on 300 million uh, cattle in india no 
Um, no. So that's once again, this is the bigger picture. This is what we're going up against. This is what you, Justin, as a rancher, have to, you know, it's like, oh, big sigh. Uh, oh my gosh. So put that into perspective, folks out there, and understand that the, the cow is not a carbon hazard. The cow is probably the best thing that we have for our <laughs> ecosystem, uh-huh. for our grasslands, for our agriculture, for our protein, for our nutrition. It means something, so you better start fighting for it. Uh, David, would you like to add to that? Hell yeah. <laughs> okay, so the the ruminal okay cow bison elk i don't think elk's actually a ruminal but we had large herds of elk along with the bison we had like we had all kinds of macrofauna so when you, when we say 30 million 30 to 60 million head of bison add 30 to to 60 million head of elk add 30 to 60 million head of some other very large animal all right that's what kept the that's what kept kind of kept the forests in check because the macro fauna would actually be crashing through the forest. And that's how all the dead branches got pounded into the soil. You know, it's like they, they did all kinds of wonderful stuff. Okay. Uh, just through their, their mechanical action of just physically walking around did more than we could possibly imagine with any number of crews of USDA and the United States Forest Service out there battling firefight, you know, firefighters or, or forest fires or whatever. But the greatest thing about a ruminal, in my opinion, and I don't like I'm just going to say, you know, I, I don't work with them. This is all just the stuff that I've been reading and been so enthralled with for like last few years mm-hmm. that I'm looking at the cow, you know, like the bovine and, and ruminals as an engine of the soil. And I, when I was on, I was on, um, uh, what was it? Uh, the meme factory, a mm-hmm. uh, couple of weeks ago. And the way I described it was that the soil is like a chassis, like a car. And without the cow, which is the engine, that car ain't going nowhere. It's just a rusted out heap, chilling out in a junkyard somewhere, waiting for an engine to be dropped into it and a nice candy red, you know, candy apple red, and then just go tearing down the, you know, because without the engine, you're nothing. And I look at the soil like that. When, you know, when, when Justin talks about the stuff that's going on top of the soil, I can immediately see its reflection as to what would occur underneath underneath the soil. It's like a mirror image. So when he talks about, you know, well, when we run, when we like put, uh, you know, cover crops on, I I, I automatically know what's going to happen underneath the soil. When he's talking about like running cattle on top of the soil, I I know what's going to happen at that soil interface. This is all connected. If you, if you strip, if you, if we, okay, if we let these assholes strip the land of its animal, then what we might as well do is we might as well just set the whole world on fire because that's exactly what's going to happen. The entire planet came, it's, it's soil, it's terrestrial function, not seagoing, but it's terrestrial function 
came up together with the animals that were on it. It's it's they may look separate. Like what, if somebody says, oh, look, there's there's cattle on that land. I look at it as one organism. I don't actually see a cow standing on dirt. I see uh, it's almost as if I see the cow inside the dirt or, or the dirt all over the cow either way, because they're critically linked. They have to be, they were raised together as brother and sister for millions of years. And all of a sudden I got Klaus Schwab telling me that from an economist situation that he knows more about climate change and therefore agriculture and I can only sit there and laugh at this freaking clown world. It gets worse and worse and worse every single day. And the only thing at this point that I can think of is one of the reasons why I brought up the, the rays of sunshine being all the Bitcoiners. I hope we all move in with a shit ton of money to the point that we all have private security <laughs> and anybody that actually walks up and says, you're not going to do it this way anymore. Let's fight. Let's go yeah. ahead and get it done. Let's just go ahead and get it over with. Right. I, I, I don't know what, I don't know how to even talk to these people anymore because they've got their freaking minions. Any now, any idiot that listens to CNN is an expert on bovine evolution. And, <laughs> right. and God forbid, it's like uh, the, cow, the, the cows are farting. No, it's they're burping. So you got it wrong all of a sudden, right? Right out of the gate, you're already wrong. And, and somehow you're an expert on all the rest of this shit. And I'll be the first here to admit, I don't raise cattle. I've never been around them. I'm not an expert. I can only tell you what it is that I've read. I'll at least admit that. And none of the rest of these people will. And it yeah. makes me just sick. Well, it, it, well, it just, I don't watch TV. I don't listen. And I've turned it all off. I'll see clips, you know, through Twitter. That's the only social media app I have. And, um, it is, it's, it's a psyop. It's a programmed initiative that they've been designing for a long time. You know, I know that because of the food intelligence that I'm in, you know, all of this really that we're seeing right now really got some attention and nobody was paying attention attention to it was back in 2012 when we had a lot of food companies basically merge and we're like well why yeah. are they merging okay what's going on here well a couple of years later guess what we had a lot of seed companies and we had a lot of chemical companies merge mm -hmm. and so they really the consolidation of of our food industry of our chemical industry and our seed industry really has put a lot of millions upon billions of dollars and a lot of closed door sessions that a lot of the people do not understand. And it's, it's way beyond just this couple of minutes that I'm going to talk about it, but it's something that's, it's so grand right now. Even the people closest in the industry don't understand it because they are so compartmentalized with the type of information that I do get from my internet scraping and the people that I do work with, you see the bigger picture. You, you know, I've got a 68 page report that really spells it out 
very clearly. And they do bring in the cow. And they were talking about the cow back in 2012. And they always have for the most part. But they were very serious about it this time. And that's what you're seeing right now. That's, you know, there's at least nine to 10 food companies that are fake protein companies. And they're going to really come hard at this, especially this winter. There will be a short-term food supply. It is going to happen. There's no way of avoiding it. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. And, and people will be able to start understanding because it, it involves fertilizer. And so by saying that, you know, there is a big deception here. There's been a big deception for a long time. A lot of the deception was being able to, you know, be covered up and people didn't even know that was going on. And, uh, you know, it's not a judgment against other people, as we say. So um, let's talk about, you know, um, Justin, what do you have to say about that? Because you see it and you have to walk that tight rope of, uh, of understanding of not being labeled or whatever. I mean, because you are a regenerative type of guy, this is your expert. I mean, you're very passionate about it. So you see it from every angle. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've, so I've been involved in the, the food legislation since 2019 in Texas, Texas has legislative sessions every odd year, mm -hmm. uh, unless they're emergency. And, uh, so I've been involved in two and it's, I mean, getting involved with that, it really opens your eyes to the amount of money that is so violently against a lot of this. And uh, I mean, we, we've gotten a lot of really good things accomplished. And that's because we really hustle because the, the people that I work with, it's not like we have millions of dollars to throw at the, at the lobbies to, you know, affect right. change on that, on that scale. Uh, but whenever you hustle and whenever you get, you know, actual people involved, you can make some change. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. I, I will say though, for sure that uh, anybody who's never been around some people who have animals for a living, there's an interesting correlation between people who raise animals for a living and people who are independently minded and own firearms. I'll just leave that at that. But if, <laughs> I mean, I guarantee nobody that raises animals is going to be like, oh, yes, you, you think these animals are bad for the, the climate change? Yes, you can take them. That's no. that scenario will never happen. <laughs> yeah. No, it will. Uh, and I, I think they 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 know that. I mean, they know they won't admit it. You know, it's a weakness that they have. But what they will try to do is like what they're doing to the cattle rancher, you know, pricing you out of business. You know, they have all their little tactics. They have banking tactics. They have, you know, taxing tactics. They have everything that they, you know, because they have the big money, you know, they've got the big power. So, but well, and that that kind of brings, let's, let's talk about that. That's the Texas beef initiative right there. We're, we're decentralizing your pr protein. What we're doing is we're going to allow you, the consumer, to look in your own backyard and you're going to say, hey, I can buy all of my animal protein. I can put a very low time preference. I can feed my family for the next year if I want to. And it's not going to be that difficult to do. And by doing that, I am I am eliminating all of the deception. I'm eliminating all of the dependency on centralized systems that try to keep us fat, lazy and stupid and poor 
And so with the Texas Beef Initiative, you and I are working together, Justin, and, you know, you're you're getting close to being full-fledged, you know, going off and being a producer, a processor, and a supplier in the state of Texas. Uh, one thing that we've talked about is that we want one processor in every county in the state of Texas. And if we can have that good. as a goal, then that's what we're going to shoot for. And that's what the Texas Beef Initiative is going to shoot for as well, because not only are we going to try to help people get their sourcing of the protein, be it beef, fowl, you know, hog, lamb, whatever it is, if it's a solid animal protein, we're going to help people get that source. We're going to bridge the gaps and then we're even going to bring in bitcoin of course because it is a store of value and i think the ranchers need this they need that store of value to where they can actually offer better deals compete with the centralized beef industry in a way that they don't understand yet you and i haven't talked about that but we will i see a great opportunity to to leverage everything that bitcoin is and to leverage the decentralized way that you guys have always been raising and producing and harvesting your protein there's something here and i think it's going to be pretty grand and pretty big um so by saying that you know um david you say you know you're not a cattle rancher but you have so much to bring to the whole understanding of what's going on and so because we're getting up on an hour and a half here and i'm going to let mm -hmm. each of you kind of comment you know we're going to carry this on for at least another two podcasts after this if you guys will be on the, with me because i think it's a really good team oh, yeah. that we've got going here so kind of let's you know your final thoughts a little bit david and basically you know what do you see you moving forward how you're going to see like us here in the panhandle move forward and just anything else you want to close out with I don't know the, the the I think it's kind of difficult to actually say where do I see the panhandle going I don't know what would have to happen for me to be able to find out where the panhandle is going is to get as many animal protein producers that are like quality people Mm -hmm. on here with us to, I mean, th surely there's a group of small animal producers that are like, like in, in some kind of cooperative, I, I, I don't know. See, that's the thing. It's like, unfortunately, not in the world. there's not <laughs> there uh, really. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well then see, I think that that would be like to maybe not even structure it. Just start going out and meeting these people. There's a sheep guy that's just down the road from me that just opened up a, a, a like a i guess he's shearing the sheep and then like probably you know right down the south of the canyon right there right on the yeah it's like it's way south yeah it's way south of me but i mean it's like what yeah, i've driven down that road several times and there was always this house for sale down in this little dip and that house finally sold and the next thing i know a guy builds a feedlot for and, and then and then right after that there's a whole shit ton of sheep on it i'm like who's this guy what is he doing? Is there a way that we can talk to him? And like one of the things that you've always said to me is like when you're talking to ranchers, you got to be kind of careful because they've been so screwed over for so long that anybody and everybody is potentially an enemy. And I'm like, I want to get I want to go ahead and get over that damn hump. 
I want to go ahead and get get right freaking through that so that we can start having these conversations with as many of the good people that are producing animal protein up here in the panhandle as I possibly can get, get them all to come talk to us that we'd all start talking about all this stuff together and see what falls out of that. Then and only then will I have any gumption of being able to say at all where I think the panhandle is going. Sure. I will say this though. I think with this discussion and the rays of sunshine from the Bitcoiners that I see shining over into our section of regen ag, I I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I just don't know what the future actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And that, well, that's what I, I'll say. I about think that. that no, I think that's a great observation because you know we haven't really even talked about that you know individually between us three um, and then collectively except until now. And so that's gonna get that's gonna give me something else as far as the Texas Beef Initiative to basically put on my agenda and to really try to make a consortium out of that. And I don't think it'll be as difficult as we think. Uh, Justin, he knows a lot of people. So it's really about framing it and putting it together to where we can actually make that happen. And I'll, after Justin's kind of finished up, I will let you know kind of my, I'm going to project out some of my plans with the Texas Beef Initiative. It's some new stuff and it's going to be pretty cool. So go ahead, Justin. Well, as far as uh, what, David just mentioned, uh, really, you know, I think one of the hardest things to get over for individual producers like that has always been the the competition mindset. And especially because of the extremely limited availability of processors, it doesn't even necessarily, you don't even necessarily have to be competing with somebody as far as selling something. You're competing with a spot for in order to even get your animal butchered before mm-hmm. you even are able to sell that animal. And so there's a lot of that that's gone into it. So I think if we can start offering these every county or every two county processors, all of a sudden it's going to open up these other avenues and there, there'll be a lot of people that will be interested in that, that can jump on. And then from there you can build all sorts of different coalitions from just processors and just people that want to sell the meat and just people that want to raise the meat. You could build all sorts of, like you mentioned, David co-ops or anything like that. But the problem has always been, we just don't have the infrastructure to process the animals in any sort of reasonable fashion. And so without that, then you're kind of stuck in that more commercial world where you're selling livestock at the auction or you have it on contract with a feed yard or something along those lines. So I think that if we can, it's going to be one of those kind of, did the chicken or the egg come first? Because you can't have that kind of cooperation without the processors, but you can't have the processors without having the people that are raising the animals. And so it's, it's going to be something that kind of has to happen at the same time. And it'll take a lot of talking to people. And I think once they know they had that option, it would be very viable, but it's, it's just, again, it's thinking very outside the box. It's, it's breaking that model. That's been a model since, the 40s or 50s or you know however long that livestock model has been in place here yeah so it's it's definitely doable but it's just going to take some hustle and it's going to take a lot of interpersonal relationships and connections and and really diving into 
not just the monetary benefits because they're definitely there, but the other benefits that you can get just from the good protein and changing how you can live your life like that. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand about Bitcoin. Whenever I say a store of value, you're, you're able to store the energy that it takes to obtain that value in a way that we've never been able to do before in, in any type of monetary system. And so that's where it becomes very valuable really quick as far as, you know, creating your legacies and doing everything that, you know, most ranchers and farmers want to do. So, you know, it's going to take some time. It's going to take some hustle. It's going to take some uh, times of being very impeccable with your words. Uh, What I want the Texas Beef Initiative to do and for people to understand out there, whatever state you're in and really even any country you're in, what we're doing here with the Texas Beef Initiative, and it is going to be headquartered out of my hometown and it's going to be, you know, kind of the world headquarters of the Texas Beef Initiative is going to be in Canyon, Texas. And so that's moving forward. Uh, that's going to be something that plays out here pretty quick. We're going to be launching a platform really soon. And, um, you know, we are. We're going to build this consortium of understanding of, you know, how everybody, if you're in Wyoming, if you're in Missouri, if you're in Maine, if you're in Kansas, if you're in New Mexico, if you're in Arizona, if you're in Alaska, if you're in Hawaii, it doesn't matter. What we're going to do is we're going to create a homegrown grassroots type of mentality, philosophy, theory, and we're going to start moving forward to where we can get everybody to start sourcing their protein locally first. That's going to be the first thing we do. Both you and David, uh, David and Justin, both of you said basically, you know, we don't know how we're going to get there. We got to do it symbiotic. You know, we got to have the demand. Guess what? We're going to create the demand to where these local people that are producing and raising and supplying their animal protein, they're going to say, hey, we're on to something here. And we're going to do it through the Bitcoin world because there's tons of plebs out there that really, really want to do this. And we're going to be the guiding light for them to be able to do this. It's going to go in for first of sourcing your protein. Then it's going to be understanding the soil, the seed, the uh, the regenerative side of it, the land tools that are the cattle and any other thing. If it's a sheep or if it's a goat, if it's a chicken, if it's a hog, you know, we're going to bring all of that to the table. And so I, th- I have no doubts this is going to happen. I know there's going to be some painful times there's going to be regulations there's going to be laws there's going to be billion dollar industries that come at us in ways that we probably see it coming but they won't be able to win in the end because this is how our grandfathers did it this is how we're going to bring it back to the understanding of people out there and it's definitely going to happen so that's kind of how i like to like to kind of close it out and and we're we'll do this again next week i hope for both of you guys uh we're gonna play yeah, this on, that. we're gonna play this on sunday night and it's friday right now so we'll just do like the next two or three sunday nights you know holidays permitting and all that kind of stuff but uh you know david everybody uh, knows you uh for your podcast but go ahead and let everybody know where they can search you out if they've never heard your podcast or you know follow you on twitter or whatever yeah, Twitter handle is at B-E-N-N-D-7-7. 
B-E-N-N-D-7-7. That's on Twitter. And the name of the podcast is Bitcoin And. And you, you can find that anywhere. I highly recommend using Podcasting 2.0. If you don't know what that is, just Google it or DuckDuckGo it and uh, put uh, Adam Curry is uh, another one of the search terms. He was one of the first MTV DJs, and now he's pretty much going to restructure podcasting as we know it. Because if you do know what Podcasting 2.0 is, you know that you can stream me some Bitcoin at the same time that you're listening to my (laughs) podcast live and in real time. And that's never been able to be done before. We are literally changing the way everybody thinks about everything that we've done because we're just sick of the of the system that we have. And Adam Curry is one of those people. So podcasting 2.0, that would be the Bitcoin and podcast, B-E-N-N-D-7-7 on Twitter. And if you need any more information than that, I I, I can't give it to you because that's <laughs> the only places that I'm at. Yeah, you're pretty, you're pretty widespread there. Uh, on that note, David, guess what? I'm on to podcast 2.0. So everybody, hey. Go stream us some nice. stats right now. So we got a great team out team out of Austin that is doing our production. Uh, love them. It's down there at the Austin Bitcoin Club. The the plebs down there. The they've got so many names out there. But uh, at Logan Troy is my producer. At Thriller Thriller X is our executive guy. His name's Carr. Uh, they're a great uh, podcasting crew. So you know, look them up as well. Uh, Justin, how can we find you right now? Because you're going to be able to start supplying soon, and people really have been very complimentary on everything that you've uh, provided in your podcast before, and people are really interested in your story and you know how they can reach out to you. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, the easiest ways, if you're on social media, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and that's just at uh, Tier Balloon. So T I R B L U E N. And if you type that into Facebook or uh, Instagram, you're going to be able to find me. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, although I'm I'm kind of brand new to Twitter, so there's not just a ton of stuff on there. Or you can just do www.tierbloon.com, and that'll lead you right to me so cool lots of ways to find me yeah definitely hey everybody out there go follow justin on twitter at tier bloom tier underscore bloom or is it tier bloom i think it's just tier bloom yeah it'll pop up it's either tir underscore bloom or it's at t-i-r-b-l-u-e-n go follow justin on twitter all you plebs uh ask him some questions and you know He'll start posting more and more information if you ask him. He's very generous with all of his expertise and his knowledge. So on that note, guys, uh, thank you for tonight. Thank you for spending the Friday night. I think that we're on to a good narrative here. We're sending out a really good signal. And um, next time, you know, over the next week, think about like what, how'd you like to, how, how you would like to evolve this conversation and kind of get people really informed where they can feel like part of the process that we're going through with here with the Texas Beef Initiative, you know, and just regenerative mindsets and everything. So thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, me too, man. See you later. All right, guys. Have a good night.